mistake. That's a rookie mistake, man. And now I'm going to do a second rookie mistake. I have to sneeze. So I'm... Every so often, yeah, thank you. Every so often, I'll have to sneeze, especially during allergy season. And sometimes I try to fight it for like five minutes um, while, while I'm preaching. And it's like, I ain't going to bother. I already did the first rookie mistake. I'm just going to own up to it. Uh, and on that note, we'll talk about the end of all things. Last week, we started this series, and we're talking about the end. Oh, apocalyptic literature, revelation. There's sort of a play on words. It's called the end of all things. But in Greek, the word that the New Testament uses for end, E-N-D, is telos. And it means something similar, but it has a little different of a nuance. End in English has more of an absolute termination sense, where telos has a more, more of a kind of... What's the, what's the goal of said behavior or project? So the telos of engagement is marriage. The end of engagement is marriage. The telos or the end of labor is birth. And so there's, a, there's something that is being reached for. And so when we talk about the end of all things, we're talking about what is all of human history? What is God's great big narrative, his story? What is it reaching for? Where's its goal? And in that, it's not the termination of all things, but it's the telos where something new can begin, namely new creation. Uh, last week I talked about the fact that when we approach the, the topic of end times, the theological term is eschatology, um, oftentimes we who live in America, who live generally good lives, don't worry about food or shelter, um, the end times literature scares us. And I talked about how when I was young, whenever someone talked about the end times or wanted to read the book of Revelation or get into the prophecies of Daniel, it was like, this is like a horror movie. It was scary. It's like terrifying. It's like what the Sunday school teachers used to, to get you to behave. You know, it's like, oh, you're kind of acting out of line. Okay, let's open up to Revelation and read about the bowls of wrath and the great throne, you know, throne, like throne room judgment of, of all believers type of thing. Now, apocalyptic literature, literature about the end times, for the first Christians wasn't scary, it was hopeful. So there's like a reversal there. We, where we have the greatest standard of living ever imagined, look at end times literature and it can cause fear. People in the first century who were Christians who were being persecuted and suffering for the gospel, this was the most hopeful literature that you could think up. And so we wanna recapture apocalyptic literature, end times literature as hopeful Literature. We don't want to be afraid of it. This is talking about our great hope as Christians, as believers. Last week, if you weren't here, please go back and listen to the sermon. I talked about the genre of apocalyptic literature. Because when the Bible talks about the end times, 75 to probably 90% of the time, it uses a literary genre called apocalyptic literature. And there's rules. And so we joked around about science fiction and romantic comedy and Western. All these genres have rules and a universe in which they live in. And the same goes for apocalyptic literature. And the number one takeaway from last week was this. If you want to understand apocalyptic literature, you need to read the Old Testament again and again and again. Apocalyptic literature uses signs and symbols and images and the sort of visual dictionary for apocalyptic literature is the Old Testament. If you want to know what bowls mean, if you want to know what trumpets mean, if you want to know what water means, all of that is found in the Old Testament. Now today, oh man, now let me go back. I don't even want to show you what we're doing today. This is probably a bad idea. Bad idea. Okay, 
So when it comes to the end times, there is one item that is probably the most debated and discussed and the most confusing. Um, Very confusing, very hard to follow. And there's multiple views that have been held in the last 2,000 years of the church. What I'd like to do is briefly outline to you the various views today and then do something that I think will be incredibly fascinating, hopefully more enlightening than just merely knowing the different views on this one topic. Some of you have heard about this stuff. Some of you, in about five minutes, you're going to say, what in the world are we even talking about at this church? I thought it was normal. This is one of the weird ones. They're going to start bringing out snakes and dancing with them in a second. Um, Some of you will have maybe heard of one of these views and just thought that was the only view. In fact, one of the views we'll get to is the, the dominant view in American culture, and most people just assume this is the only view held by Christians in the last 2,000 years. So everyone's going to be at a different place. Today we'll be talking about something called the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That already sounds weird for some of you. So where is this base off of? It's only mentioned like briefly in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read to you the section in which it comes from. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there's an angel, he's got a big giant chain, he throws the devil in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and it says, after that, oh yeah, he's got to be released. It's like, what are you going to release the devil for? You got him bound in a bottomless pit, man. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them, were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so briefly, again, summary. Super angel throws the devil into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. After a thousand years, the devil somehow gets released. While he's bound, the devil doesn't have the power to blind the nations. The duration of that is said to be a thousand years. Okay. Now, how in the world do you interpret that? Now, historically, there's been three major views to the millennium. Now, in honesty, each one of those three views, it's like anything. There's like like many versions of it, different versions of it, but there's three major views. Uh, the third one kind of has two major views, so I'm going to break that up so it's like, I don't want to call it four views, it's like two versions of the third view, and in that you're going to get 99% of all the views that have been believed in in the last 2,000 years of church history. 
Now, what, what is helpful in this is that they have some names that help, help us track with it. So when it comes to understanding this thousand years, the three views are premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Now, raise your hand if you've heard of all three of these before. Okay, so 70%, 70, 70, 80%. How many of you could, now that's a, that's a show-off question. I was going to say, how many of you feel comfortable articulating what three of those views mean? So then like the straight-A students in the homeschool, you know, kids, they all get to do it. This is an oversimplified presentation. So I'm going to rush through these. In no way am I doing justice to any of these views. I'm just going to briefly give you the outline and then go to an exercise that I think is far more valuable. It'll be very interesting. So stick with me as, as we kind of get through the, the three views. So premillennialism believes that the millennium will happen before the return of Christ. So all of these base the pre and post upon when the return of Christ occurs. Premillennialism says there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ before the final return of Christ. Amillennialism is the, the word ah, you think of the word atheism, no God. Amillennialism means no millennium. Now, if you're an amillennialist, though, that's misleading because you'd say, no, I believe in a millennium. I just don't think it's a literal thousand years. We'll get to that in a moment. Postmillennialism says that the millennium will happen post-return. So, brief. these are some helpful charts. Um, it'll be difficult to see, but just, just track with me. First, we'll look at post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, you can see there's a giant cross on the left. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? Then the timeline goes forward, and at some point, a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is going to begin, now, that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ does not necessarily mean that Jesus comes back to earth and, like, opens up shop in Jerusalem and says, look, I'm back. What's up? Everyone come worship me. What it means is, this is incredibly important for what we'll do later, is that for, for the history of the church, there will be more and more evangelism and more and more people becoming disciples and followers of Jesus. It's the optimistic view. More and more people are going to become followers of Jesus, so much so that at some point the millennium kicks in because the majority of the world is Christian, the majority of the nations have been evangelized, and we are going to be able to usher in the final return of Christ. So briefly again, Jesus dies, resurrects, puts his spirit in the believers. We've been evangelizing and evangelizing, and at some point we've evangelized so much Man, more than half the world's Christian. Majority of the nations are Christians. The church is triumphantly bringing the gospel to all people, and there's a reign of Christ through his church on earth, and then at that point, when it's like Jesus looks down on earth and says, man, most people are Christian, time to come to, to earth, and then new creation. Very optimistic. There's probably only two post-millennialists in this room today. We'll get to more to that in a, we'll get to that in a moment. Amillennialism. Once again, the cross, death and resurrection of Jesus. It says, and on this chart it says, you see it say symbolic millennium. It's, this is one of the things that's confusing, and even these charts get this stuff wrong. It's the belief, it's not, amillennialism is not saying it's a symbolic reign of Christ. It's saying that Christ is currently, right now, ruling in heaven. 
That's a literal reign of Christ. He's ruling from heaven, and he's ruling on earth through his church. But what's not literal is the thousand years. So as soon as Christ ascended, he's now ruling and reigning. The reign of Christ has begun. And the thousand years is the part that's symbolic, because it could, it could be 100 years, it could be 1,000 years, it could be 5,000 years. We don't know how long it's going to be until Christ comes back for the final judgment. The way you look at it is this. In the Gospels, Jesus says he's come to do what, what to the works of Satan? He's come to bind the strong man. At the resurrection, Jesus binds Satan. He no longer has the ability to blind the nations. Now when people preach the gospel to the nations, they get saved. He's bound right now, and at the second coming, he will be destroyed. So, again, briefly, Jesus' death, crucifixion, binds Satan. Now, because he's bound, he can't blind the nations. The gospel will be preached. And that's actually what you see going on for 2,000 years. More and more people becoming Christians. God, Christ will come back in the second coming, not just to bound Satan. He will loose him from the binding, then to ultimately destroy him. All right. The last few premillennials, this is the most confusing one, and there's two versions of it. So this is the one place you have the, the ability to just go, dude, this is weird. Stick with me. It'll all come together, I promise. But this premillennialism by the way, is the view that most American modern evangelicals hold to, but is the hardest to understand. So, what does premillennialism says? Two versions of it. First version is called historic premillennialism. And historic premillennialism says that the millennium has not begun yet. Kind of says, look around at the world. Does it look like, every, like Christ is ruling and reigning perfectly like it says he will? There's all this evil and suffering. The church is going to go forward and at some point, massive tribulation for the church is going to break out. Christ is going to return at that point when all this persecution is going on and open up his millennial reign. And for a thousand years, most people think reigning from Jerusalem on earth, Christ will rule and reign. So millennium is not now. It's not going on. Things are going to get worse and worse. Christ will return and set up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. After that thousand years is done, then the final new creation begins. Now, there's a, uh, another version of premillennialism, and this is the one that most of you, and I'll ask you for a second if you were brought up on this, because this is by far the most common in America. Has the longest name, too. Pre-tribulation, pre dispensational premillennialism. Okay, now what this one says is this, very similar to normal historic premillennialism, but it has some twist. It says, the millennium is not now. The thousand-year reign of Christ is not occurring. We're going to move forward, and at some point, massive tribulation is going to break out. God, at that point, will rapture his church. So if you're a Christian at that time of the massive tribulation breaking out, God will take you up to heaven with him, and there will be seven years of the worst tribulation that has ever been experienced on earth. After that seven years of tribulation, then Christ, along with all the Christians who he raptured up into heaven, will return to earth and set up shop in Jerusalem and rule and reign for a thousand years, and then the new creation begins. Uh, I didn't want to make it too complicated, but there's actually like four versions of this one too. Uh, 
Because some people, and if you've been like Christian, you're old school Christian, you know this stuff, uh, you know that some people think the rapture will happen right before the tribulation starts, right in the middle, or towards the end. So there's, there's even different views of this one. But for the most part, people hold to a sort of the rapture happening before seven years of tribulation, after the seven years, then a thousand year millennial reign of Christ beginning. Okay. Summary. Because this is where it gets super important. Postmillennialism says the church is going to move forward. It's very optimistic. And as time passes, more and more people will become Christians. And pretty much the world will become Christianized. Sure, there'll be persecution. Some, some countries won't become Christian. But majority of people will be believing in the gospel. And will be able to usher in the return of Christ. All millennialism says the millennium is right now. Christ is ruling in heaven. And he's extending that rule on earth through his church. And at some point in the future, there will just be the second coming. There doesn't need to be any thousand-year additional reign of Christ because that's already occurring. And then new creation begins. Premillennialism says church is moving on. At some point, things are going to get really, really, really bad. And Christ is going to either come to rapture his church or set up a thousand years to rule and reign. If he raptures his church, there'll be seven years of tribulation and then a thousand years of him ruling and reigning. Okay, now, if you only followed 20% of that, you'll be okay for what we're going to do. You only, need, you only need like 10%. You just need a little tiny bit of following that to do what I think is one of the most important exercises we can do as a church. First, all three views are orthodox Christian beliefs, meaning faithful Christians have held to these views at different points and different times in history. Um, but what's fascinating is when which view was the dominant view and why it was the dominant view at that time. In other words, culture and where you find yourself at in history has the power to significantly influence your theological conclusions. So much so that if you're an evangelical Christian in 1952, and I'm a betting man, I put all the money on the table saying you're a premillennial, dispensational premillennialist. If you are an evangelical Christian in the late 1700s, I put all my money saying you're a postmillennialist. Where you find yourself in culture and history has the ability to significantly influence theological conclusions. And I want to walk through this to show you how it works. And then the point is to show us that, man, we got to be aware that we have blinders on all the time. Our culture puts blind, blinders on all of us. And so when we come to the text, we want to do our best to say, what is this text saying? How is my culture influencing my understanding of this text so I don't come to a wrong conclusion? Okay. So, postmillennialism. I kind of hinted at it already, but I was going to say, guess when you think this was most popular? I said 1700s. Why do you think postmillennialism, the optimistic view, the church is just going to keep advancing and everyone's going to become Christian? Why is that the dominant view for Christians in the 1700s and the 1800s? Well, if you're an American, you look around. Everything's getting better. Say if you're a Puritan that came to the new land, everyone in your village is Christian. The town fool is the person who's not a Christian. 
Now where you work, if you work like in the tech industry, you're the, the company fool if you're the evangelical Christian. 1700s, if you live in a Puritan village, everyone is Christian. And more importantly, the gospel is going out. And on top of that, what is also occurring? Scientific revolution. Medicine, technology, the printing press, all of these amazing discoveries are showing that the world is becoming a better place. The world is becoming a safer place. More and more people are becoming Christian. We just keep what we do, keep doing what we're doing. How could the nations not come to Christ? Satan is bound. The gospel's going out. Sure, there's some persecution here and there. And even if there was massive persecution in another country, would you ever hear about it? You have no idea what the Christians in Egypt are, are going through. Christians in this country. All you know is that anyone you've ever met in your life has never once been persecuted for the gospel. And pretty much everyone seems to be Christian. Even the people who aren't Christian at least claim to be Christian. So it's a very optimistic view. And what, combined with the myth of progress, everything's getting better. Science, medicine, technology. Now, post-millennialism as the dominant view, the view that was held by many of the best thinkers of the time, dies a sudden, quick, fast death. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that it's the wrong view. I'm saying it's death means that people really aren't believing it anymore. Still could be right, but it dies. Now, when do you think the optimistic view of the church conquering the nations dies? 1900s, between 1901 to about 1950. Why? Namely, World War I and World War II, the rise of communism. Who in their right mind after that believes the world's becoming a better place? All the science and technology that we've done that was supposed to make the world a better place, we just used it to kill more millions. And what's worse, all the millions that have died, where was it occurring? In Western Europe, Supposedly the place that was most advanced and where Christian culture has taken the deepest roots. Who can, the world's not becoming a better place. And more importantly, now we're starting to get communication that there's persecuted Christians all around the, the world. And now we have research that shows there's tons of people who haven't heard the gospel. There's whole countries that are turning communist. Christianity is outlawed. The myth of progress dies because of World War I and World War II. Optimism dies. How many people in this room were, who were who brought up going to church were taught that the world would become a better and better place and it would become so good at some point Christ would just return because the majority of people were Christian? Raise your hand. Anybody? Not a single person. This was the dominant view of brilliant Christian thinkers in the 1700s, 1800s. People who we look up to, who are geniuses. But that's how the, the time shapes it. Now, amillennialism. Amillennialism says Christ is right now ruling and reigning in heaven, and he's extending his rule to earth through the church. Now, it's very difficult right now to picture, like, Christ extending his rule to the, like, through South Valley Community Church, the reign of the King of Kings is being implemented through you and I on earth. 
Think if you were alive between, say, 500 and 1500 AD. Do you realize there wasn't the separation of church and state? That not only is not being rooted for, that concept hasn't even arisen in people's thoughts for the most part. Why why would there be a separation of, of church and state? And the church is pretty much, you have basically the one, you have just, I don't even want to call it Catholicism because there's one church at this point. And the Eastern Orthodox Church splits in, in, in roughly the thousands A.D., but there's not like Presbyterians and Baptists and, and Lutherans. There's just Christians. So there's one kind of unified church. And is that church involved in politics? Is that church involved in government? Yes. So much so. This is crazy. There is a symbolic, two symbolic acts that are very important to understand. Constantine supposedly converts to Christianity in the, in the 300s A.D., And this ends the persecution of Christians. And now, all of a sudden, Christians are being treated nice by the government. In 800 AD, super important to understand, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne the emperor of the Western world. Now, you've got to understand the symbolism here. Who is the most powerful person in the Western world at this point? Whoever the emperor is, whoever the king is. Who gives the power to that king to be the king? The church did. When you have the pope placing the crown on the king to everyone in that room, it says the church is actually the highest authority on earth. Sure, they submit to the king, but they are somehow crowning him as well. So everyone would, I mean, what would you think? Christ is ruling in heaven and he's extending his reign to earth through the church. And we don't just mean that like in a, in a spiritual pietistic way. We mean that literally. Look at the, the gospel's being preached. The church is growing. This is the dominant view for more than a thousand years. It's actually still worldwide the dominant view. But for Americans, we, we have separation of church and state. We, we don't want to get those mixed. And we have all these different denominations. I mean, there's not one unified body of believers. I mean, sometimes, especially in kind of, this is going to disappear in the next 50 years. But um, there was a time in American church life where it's like you can fight with the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and nitpick at each other all day. That, that's going to go away. But I mean, when you, when you did that, it's like there's no kind of one worldwide church of Christ. It's just a, the denominations. The third view, premillennialism, was actually condemned as heresy in 500 AD. So basically, what you need to know is that for the majority of church history, everyone is this middle position. When I say everyone, not everyone. There's always exceptions, but the majority. Now, the last view, premillennialism. Now, one of the things I didn't mention about premillennialism is that it has, it has a focus on ethnic Israel. God made promises to ethnic Israel that have not literally come true. In the past, you would just say, oh, well, some of those promises to Israel have been absorbed in the promises to the church. And the church is now Jews and Gentiles, and that's how it all works out. Premillennialism has an emphasis on saying that there's things God promised to ethnic Israel that have not occurred. 
God is always faithful to his promises. And so some of these verses that we're just, they would say, amillennialist are allegorizing or spiritualizing, we're waiting for those to be returned. Now, in 1855, what do you think about someone who is talking about promises to ethnic Israel as a nation? You're going like, dude, Israel doesn't even exist. Israel does not exist. There's Jews scattered throughout the world. When did that happen? 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. But there is no temple now. There's no, there's no state of Israel. You just have kind of Jews scattered all across the world. So no one, like, no one is not even, dis, no one is dispensational premillennial at this point. There's some historic premillennials. Like, no one is dispensational premillennial. Then something occurs. When does postmillennialism die? World War I, World War II. At the end of World War II, what occurs? The reconstitution of Israel as a state. Now, all of a sudden, in 1948, Israel is a state, and people from all, ethnic Jews from all around the world are going there. So then, like overnight, the masses are becoming premillennial. And probably all of, all of us would too. We'd be like, all millennial, be like, dude, that's way too, there's too much, there's too much going on there. And you got to think about that. Israel didn't have a state for 2,000 years. And then at the end of one of the most horrific points in human history, Israel is born again. This is, I mean, crazy. So in 1948 till roughly about now, the dominant view, at least in American evangelical culture, has been premillennialism. Now, we're starting to see that fade for a number of reasons, but I'll, show you, I'll tell you one of the, probably the most significant. Jesus uh, talks about the end, and he says all these signs and prophecies, and then he says, the generation that sees these signs will not taste death. They will not taste death. So many people thought that the generation that saw the signs of the times, the reconstitution of Israel in 1948, they said that generation will not see death, meaning Christ will return in their lifetime. So you can imagine the countdown. You have 1948. That generation is going to see the return of Christ. Now, how long has it been since 1948? Roughly 70 years. How do you, well, what's that generation mean? You've got to somehow calculate. And so at first, people said a biblical generation is 40 years. So 1948 plus 40, 40 years, give or take. Then that went, and a lot of people are like, oh, man, we were wrong. But then some people said, no, no, biblical generation isn't 40 years. It's 70 years, and there was reasons to, to do that. Now, 70 years is about to pass, and even less people are premillennial, but some people are saying, no, no, a biblical generation is, guess how long? Is there any more? 120 years. Talks about that in the, in the Pentateuch. 120 years. So they go, no, no, we still have a time window. But as each one of those kind of generational time, time points goes away, you're seeing less and less people kind of give up on premillennialism. It's still the dominant view. Now, all I want to do for you today is show you how time and culture can shape your views so significantly 
that if you were to be taken and dropped off at a different time point, you'd be more inclined to believe something. It doesn't mean you would have to believe it or every 100% of the time, but it's showing you how culture can blind you. This is one of the most important things we can understand when we come to the Bible. We've talked a lot a bit about at this church about it, but say, for instance, passages about rich people. When the Bible talks about rich people, it has a lot of warnings for them. And typically what we do as rich people is we look at people who are far richer than us and think the Bible's talking about those people. It's like, no, compared to the world standard, you're the rich person. Or the Bible has a lot to say about poor people. And oftentimes, rich people go, oh, the Bible there is talking about spiritually poor people, not, not just materially poor people, spiritually poor people. And it's like, uh, sometimes it's talking about spiritually poor people, and sometimes it's talking about people who don't have a lot of money. Blessed are the poor. Or the commands to take care of the widow and the orphan. It's like, those aren't talking about the spiritual widows or the spiritual orphans. And so we have blinders on our eyes. And so we want to do our best to let the text speak for itself. Now, this is probably the the hardest. This is like nowhere. I'm not aware of anything in all of Scripture that puts on greater cultural blinders than this. So don't feel hopeless. Like, well, you just gave an example of how everyone was this way at this period and everyone was this way at this period. It's all hopeless. This is the most extreme example of it. But it's the most clear to show you how culture shapes your understanding of things. So you want to be asking yourself when you read your Bible, where are my blind spots? Where are my blind spots? One of the best ways to reveal your blind spots is be reading the Bible communally with people who aren't like you. So if you're young, make sure there's some old people there. If you're old, get some young people there. Get, some, get people from, from a different ethnic background. You know, one of the, the best ways to illustrate this is, just, I, I've always talked about this, my, uh, my, my father's Hispanic, my, my mother's Caucasian, but just the difference between the English word family and the Spanish word familia, they don't mean the same thing. They really don't. Because, like, oftentimes family for some people is just your, like, immediate family, like your mom, dad, grandpas, and, and maybe a cousin. And many cultures say, like, familia Dude, that could, be, that could mean like a hundred person. There's a radius to that that's far greater. You can be a third cousin, and that's blood. You lay your life down for that person. I don't even know my third cousin's name. Like, some of you, I don't even know what's a third cousin. So there's a difference. And so sometimes you, you need people from different backgrounds to go, oh, when the Bible, or what about this? What about someone who's been adopted? And the Bible says, you've been adopted into the family of God. Do you think that someone who's been literally adopted might hear that differently than you? It's like, so that's, you need that, that's why the diversity in the body of Christ is so important, because we reveal each other's blind spots. Now, all all three of these views, you're waiting at some point for me to tell you what I believe, I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) Um, That would defeat the whole purpose of this exercise. Uh, all of these views have been held by Christians throughout the centuries. And as a church at South Valley, we want to be gospel-centered. And what we mean by that is we center on the gospel, and where there's areas that aren't important for salvation, we can agree to disagree. So, for instance, um, 
I, I co-lead with, uh, with Malcolm McPhail of New Hope and Dave Whitaker of Morgan Hill Bible Pastors Network in the area. Now, we're different pastors. There's Presbyterians there. There's Pentecostals there. There's, we're non-denominational. Um, we disagree on, on some things, and we can even debate them, but we're not going to separate on them or throw stones at each other. I mean, I will clearly and articulate the right answers to them. Um, but I'm not going to, you know, reject them because the differences. And, and, and they to me. Uh, so we want to be centered on the gospel. We want to be centered on the gospel and agree to disagree on issues that aren't important for our salvation. Does it mean those issues aren't important? No, they're important and we should discuss them. But they're not essential to salvation. We maintain gospel centrality. Now, what are all these three things reaching for? We have amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. They're all reaching for the same thing. One specific thing. And that one specific thing is the resurrection and new creation. Some people have a thousand year reign of Christ before. Some people have tribulation, rapture. They are all reaching for Christ to come back and physically raise up everyone who's ever lived to judge right and wrong and to usher in the new kingdom. Resurrection, physical bodily resurrection of believers is the hope of all these three views. Now this is where it's so important. We have a hope. And in all of these different theological constructs, the hope is the same. Physical bodily resurrection. That's our hope. On the opposite end, here's an example of cultural blinders that are blinding someone to something that is core to Christianity. As in, this is a salvation issue. As in, if you reject this, you are not a Christian. This is an article that appeared rough, uh, right around Easter time in the New York Times. And it's an interview with the president of Union Theological Seminary, Serena Jones. President of Union Theological Seminary. This is a Christian institution. It's been around for a long time, located in New York. There's a lot of stuff we could look at, but I just want to show you a couple quotes. When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. What's your claim? The empty tomb is not an empty tomb because there's a physical, literal resurrection. It's symbolic. And what is it symbolic of? That the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. The ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. She goes on. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb for three days and he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. Okay, now some of you are probably rightfully in your head going, if they found the body of Jesus, yes, my faith is done. Mine would be too. And why would mine be done? Because that's what the Bible actually says. The Bible says, if Christ did not rise, you are to be most pitied. 
You give away your money. You care for the poor. You, you, you care for the needy. You forgive your enemies. You turn the other cheek. That's all stupid if Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's nonsense if Christ did not rise. Now, this is what's interesting. This is how the cultural blinders work. How could, where could you exist in a place and time where the resurrection from the dead is somehow a symbol of us all being absorbed into the metaphor that love conquers all things. It's like, only when you live in a place that experiences the greatest standard of living that ever existed. It's like, do you know how many people in human history live their entire lives as slaves? You know, I mean, every, from the day you were born to the day you died, you were a slave. What's the Christian hope there? Oh, you lived your life as a slave, but when you die, you get absorbed into the metaphor of love conquers all things. It doesn't do anything for you. If you've lost a child, well, you need to know that your baby lives on in your heart. What about the Christian who were blown to pieces in Sri Lanka on Easter? Do you tell their loved ones? Yes, they died at church for their faith. And now it's so good to know that they are connected metaphorically to the symbol of an empty tomb. I want to show you a chart of how these blinders work. It's hard to read. You don't have to read. It'll be simple to understand. This is a, a, a chart mapping out income and belief in physical resurrection. And the gist of it is this. The more money you make, the more likely you are to not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. And, I mean, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, th- I mean, think about this. I mean, what is your greatest problem if you have a, a, great, a great life? What was the whole book of 1 Peter about? Don't get comfortable. Don't store up treasures here on earth. It's easy not to store up treasures on earth when you're persecuted and living in poverty. It's very difficult when you have a good life. So what happens is, is the more you acquire in this life, the greater the temptation is to get comfortable. Now again, it's not saying in and of itself there's something wrong with being rich or having a lot of money. It's saying you better watch out because the temptation of money is a temptation that is very powerful. And the more money you make, the, the less likely you are to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do the scriptures say of this? The scriptures say, if Christ did not rise, it all falls apart. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. You notice, this is of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been, ra- then even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all a people to be pitied. So yeah, if Christ didn't rise, it all falls apart. Now this is, this is where it, hopefully it comes together. All those three views, with all their differences, they're all reaching for the same thing. Meaning, if you were a Christian at any point in time, you might have disagreed on exactly how you got there, but all Christians historically have believed that the end goal is a physical bodily resurrection and then new creation. That is why this is the hope of all things. And I'll tell you why it's a hope and why it's more, it's more of a hope if you don't have a comfortable life. I mentioned someone who's born in slavery. I mean, think, that's unimaginable to us in this room. You live your entire life, sun up to sundown, backbreaking labor, mistreated, treated like an animal. You watch your children get sold at the slave market. You see your child die at eight because there isn't medication to bring them back to health. You don't need a God to tell you your child lives on in your heart. You need a God that can tell you, I will give you your baby back. You will hold that child. You will say its name and it will say mom once again. And when you embrace, that embrace will be very familiar. Like something in your distant memory that never went away. When you're suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it, man. We still live in a world where hundreds of thousands of Christians every year are being tortured and killed for their faith. As you go to the noose, you don't tell yourself, I'm going to be absorbed into the symbol of the empty tomb. You say, do not fear the person who can destroy body, but fear God who can destroy both body and spirit. And trust in a God who says, I will bring you back. See, this is the claim of Christianity. What God did for Jesus in the resurrection, he will do for you. What God did for Jesus in the resurrection, he will do for all of creation. All of creation longs and groans for the new creation. This is why revelation, apocalyptic literature, it's all about hope. Because when you lose your child, you don't need a metaphor. You need something concrete and tangible. When you're on your deathbed, you need something concrete. When you see Christians suffering around the world, you need to know that what God did for Jesus, he will do for them. It's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. And shame on us. For all of our roots in Christianity, we now have 
people who lead seminaries teaching and denying the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to pass out communion. At this church, we have, I mentioned this last week, and it'll be a theme for the rest of this series. Every week, man, we have people dying, people who have died. We have dear friends right now in the hospital. Not given good, they're given horrible news. They're terminal. Some don't know. It's 50 50. When it's on the line and you on your deathbed, you want something powerful. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on your behalf to give you new life. And that even if the first death takes you out, the second death will have no hold on you. You will be physically, bodily resurrected. And whether there's a thousand years or not, you will enter into the new creation. The beautiful thing about the new creation is that we, we all experience it at the same time. You ever think about that? So, um, if you die... You go to be with God, and we don't know exactly how that looks like, like your spirit is with God. But we don't get physical resurrected bodies until the new creation. When that day happens on the final day, everyone gets physical new body, new creation on the same day. So everyone, including your loved ones who have already passed, you get to experience it together for the first time. Brand new, together, walking in. And so we have a meal that points to this truth and this reality. And Christ, 2,000 years ago, gave us this meal, and he says, these two things point to a great reality, the truest of all realities, the thing that is most true. God himself dies on a cross to forgive us and he is the first fruits of the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection of all believers into the new creation. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and remember the sacrifice. Of the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood spilt on your behalf. When you take it, don't just remember, but declare my death and resurrection until I return. And so, Lord, we proclaim your resurrection. Father, we ask for comfort for all of those who are suffering, whose bodies are failing, who have lost loved ones, who have bad news of, of health, we pray for the persecuted believers all across the globe. Give them the hope that all of the apocalyptic literature points to, the hope that Revelation points to, that there's a king on a throne declaring that one day he will make all things new. So give us hope 
give them hope, inspire us to live in such a way that we do not live as if this life is the only life, but people who live in light of eternity. Fix our eyes on you, Lord, and we say with all the Christians around the world, come, Lord Jesus, come.